I've been thinking a lot about building because that's what we're about to do. And uh, before I begin my sermon, I, I want to give an exhortation of, or is I don't think I've ever told my family here is an exhortation. Um, so maybe just a word, a push, a friendly little push. And that is that uh, everybody that's ever built a home as a married couple tells me that they fight over it. And that causes me to be concerned about um, going into building a church because I think, you know, I don't want us to fight over it. If one of the things that I'm so grateful for about our church is that we don't fight, then maybe it would be good for me to say, okay, all of you, no fighting. <laughs> you know, because that's what you do at home. You know, if you're going to go on a vacation, you set up the car in such a way that your kids can manage a lot of time in the car without fighting. So maybe this is like us all getting in the car with a 24-hour trip and I say to all of us, no fighting, all right? Um, you know, we've all been in churches where you still hear the stories of the fights over the building from 20 years earlier. My last church, they fought over whether or not to have a basement. And when I got there, they were fighting over whether or not to replace the chairs that had been in a fire or to re reupholster them or to clean them, I think it was. Some people weren't coming, the guy wasn't coming to church because he thought the wrong decision had been made. Well, this is the kind of thing you fight over. Uh, at my two previous church, the big battle there was that uh, the men had decided, the women, there had been a decoration committee and they had decided they were going to paint the nice new wood woodwork. And as the men got together and began to paint, the men revolted and said no. This is too beautiful. The, the grain of the wood is just fantastic, and we will not paint it. And uh, so we had to have the main man and the main woman come into my office, and I had to have her cry in front of him before the men stopped rebelling. <laughs> it's always good to have women cry because there's no fight left in any men. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so anyhow, I don't know what it'll be with this. I'm sure it'll be something. And if it's me, you rebuke me and you remind me that I said we're not going to fight. And if it's you, I might just remind you that we're not going to fight. And uh, I don't know if Mike's here. Yeah, you're here, Mike. You're our main man. So if you need to discipline any of us, you go ahead and do it because we want your work to be a joy. All right. So no fighting. All right. That one's free. Now you paid for the next one. <laughs> That's a joke, but now we'll get into our sermon. Um, would you open your Bibles, please, to Galatians 5? Now, I know I've preached on this text three times now. I know Steve, Stephen has preached on it once. But it's kind of the fulcrum, it's the hinge, it's the joint of Galatians, of so much, and we're going to spend a number of weeks in it. And we will keep getting additional things from this passage. We've added a few verses this time, reading through the end of the chapter. Galatians 5, beginning with verse 13, reading to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God, and it is what? Eternally true. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. 
For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the section, this section um, of chapter 5, you know that as you go back into the original text of the Greek or of the Hebrew and the Old Testament, you know they didn't have chapters and verses. They're added for our convenience. And and so you shouldn't feel compressed to sort of have an arbitrary break in thoughts in Scripture. And sometimes where you break the chapters and even where you break paragraphs in the text of Scripture has a real impact on the flow of the argument. So be a little bit suspicious of chapter and verse breaks just as you would the study notes in your Bible. They're added by men. They're often good. But they're not inspired. Now, we here are in chapter 5, and I have said that this section is a section that, that, is, that is making a transition. Um, at its beginning and at its end, there are statements of Paul's concern for what? For the unity of the church in Galatians. And this is a, a new theme that we're turning to this morning. But I want you to look at the text as a whole, and I want you to feel the weight of this issue of unity in the body of Christ, all right? So let's go back and and just notice quickly the things that speak of unity. At the beginning, it says, through love, serve one another. That's the whole thrust of that first verse. The thrust of the first verse isn't the flesh. And, and it isn't freedom, but this verse is thrusting through to, through love, serve one another. Then, of course, in the next verse, love your neighbor. Um, then the next verse, negatively, don't bite and devour one another. Um, don't consume one another. And, and then, as you keep going, you see a list here. It t- talks about one another in verse 17. Um, And then in verse 19, it begins a list. Now, notice in the list how many of these things have to do with our relationships with each other. All right, unity. It starts out with immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And then notice the strength of the theme of unity or the violations of unity. Now, obviously, I could go on and explain how uh, immorality destroys unity. I mean, there's nothing more basic than a man uh, being cuckolded by another man and wanting to kill him, right? 
But I'm going to move on and speak about the things that we're more comfortable speaking about, namely direct statements about what goes on in churches normally that we don't blush to speak of, although we ought to. And this begins in verse 20, where we see enmities, then we see strife, then we see jealousy. All right, then outbursts of anger and then disputes and dissensions and factions. And then envying, drunkenness, carousing and things like these. And then we see on the opposite side, the fruit of the spirit, verse 22, love, joy, peace, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, love, peace, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Then a statement about this battle within us between the flesh and its, its lusts and passions and between the Holy Spirit's control of us. And then verse 26 ends the section, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Now, what's going on here is that the Galatians are not unified. And it's interesting that you have this theme of, of, of unity all through the New Testament. Uh, it's there in the Gospels. It's there in the upper room as the disciples are preparing uh, for, for their Lord to be crucified. The Holy Spirit, uh, um, even in that upper room, we see this, this, this temptation. Uh, it says in the upper room that they were striving between each other to see which of them would be the greatest. And you see this even in the book of Philippians, Eudoi and Syntyche agree with one another in the Lord, uh, the most upbeat uh, epistle of Paul's. You see it all through the New Testament. Now, stop and think about this. The book of Galatians is written for what purpose? If I were to ask you this, you'd immediately say, well, it's intended to give us a proper view of the law so that we are not in bondage to the law, but rather we're free in Christ, right? Well, why did Paul have to write that? It's so obvious we don't think of it. The reason Paul had to write that is that that church was divided over the purpose of the law. That church was divided over circumcision. Now think about that. Paul wrote a letter in order to bring unity to the church in Galatians. All right? The Galatians were not unified, and so Paul wrote a letter intending to unify them. That's, you know, that, that may not be a, an explanation you feel comfortable with, but it is true. And so what is going on in this church is that we have disunity and you can see this theme of trying to bring unity to the church very clearly here. Now, I'm going to go back and I'm going to make the case that the parts of the text that we have already studied in the earlier chapters have this theme of unity also, but it doesn't pop out at us the way it does here. I mean, it pops out at you when you read uh, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, Right. You can't help but think unity when it's speaking of that. Now, it begins then, this section where we continue to be pushed towards unity, or the Galatian church continues to be pushed towards unity. It begins the text by saying what? It says, through love, serve one another. You were called to freedom. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity of the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Now, what is opposed to their serving one another? If you look at the text, well, you see that the thing that's opposed to their serving one another is what? The flesh. Now, what is this flesh that Paul speaks of? Well, the word in Greek is sarx, from which we get the word sarcophagus, um, which r literally means to eat the flesh. I just 
thought I'd mention that to you. So later when we have Stephen's cannibalism, you remember Stephen's illustration? There is actually a theme here of these words. Um, and so we have here uh, flesh uh, used by the Apostle Paul to mean a number of different things throughout his letters. If you go to other places where Paul uses this Greek word sarks, you'll see that it can mean literally the human body. It can mean what the Old Testament refers to as Adam or the race of man. It can, in other words, be referring to all human beings. It can mean physical things. But if we look back at Galatians 2.20, we'll see a use of the word flesh that differs from the way Paul uses it here and within the same letter. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It's a verse that many of you know by heart. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Well, this is a little bit of a different use of this word flesh by the Apostle Paul in the same letter. Uh, Here in chapter 2, flesh is not being used in a negative way, the way that it's used here in chapter 5. Here in chapter 2, flesh refers to the physical existence. Uh, The time that we're here in this veil of tears... um, We are still in the flesh. We are here where life is bound to the corruption that's the result of the fall. And we're looking forward. We're living by faith and we're looking forward to the day when we will no longer be subject to the fall. And all the weaknesses and all the sadnesses and the sicknesses and the temptations and the death of this time here in the flesh. All right. We're still in the flesh, but we live by faith, looking forward to the time when that flesh will be put off, when it will be left behind in the grave, where when Christ returns in the second coming, it will then be brought back to life, but in, in a perfect form. Now, coming back to verse, or to chapter 5, then what does Paul mean in chapter 5? Well, Paul here is not simply referring to our physical existence. He's not referring to something morally neutral, but rather he's referring to something that is corrupt. Look at verse 13 again. It says, Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but, so it hinges on but, but through love serve one another. So flesh here is being used in opposition to the love and to the loving service of one another. And so flesh can't be a good thing here. It has to be a bad thing, right? And if we look at the rest of the book of Galatians, we'll find flesh is used in this bad way again and again. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So here we have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in direct opposition to the desires of the flesh. So it's not a good thing, is it? Verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit. So the flesh and the Spirit are in mutual opposition. Uh, they hate each other. They're, they're in opposition to each other. Uh, they seek to destroy one another. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, and so forth. Again, not a good thing. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? Have what? Have crucified the flesh. Again, not a good thing. 
with its passions and desires. And then in chapter 6, verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so, in these last two chapters of Galatians, the Apostle Paul is using flesh in a very, very negative way. It refers to everything that wars against the Holy Spirit. Everything that seeks to pull us back to our slavery, to Satan, and to death, and to hell. Flesh is the realm or the kingdom of our own passions and our own lusts and our own desires. And it's the thing within us that wars against the truest desires that we have, which are those that are given to us by the Holy Spirit and which are the fruit of faith in Jesus Christ. Flesh is the passion and drive. Fresh, flesh is every nook and cranny within us where the devil wages war against us and through us where the devil wages war against God. Everything in us that's the result of the fall and of Adam's sin. And we must say in this university community, this includes all of our wrong thinking. We have a tendency to think that the brain escapes the corruption of the fall. That it's the flesh, you know, and of course the brain isn't flesh, you know. The brain's pure, it's reasonable, it's rational. You know, every husband thinks that the problem with his wife is that she doesn't think, you know, she just feels, right? Well, thinking isn't any better off than feeling when it comes to the corruption of the flesh. Uh, You've all had the, the occasion of watching your own thinking process and thinking it was objective and it was rational and it was logical. Um, and then all of a sudden you see how the corrupt desires that you have have flipped your thinking in such a way that it was completely contrary to the facts. Your desires misled you. This is the whole premise of Paul Johnson's book, The Intellectuals, where he shows all these Elite intellectuals of the Western world have all basically given issue in their thinking and writing to what their flesh desired. All right. So it's very important that those of you that study for a living don't think that somehow your brain escapes the corruption of the flesh. Your, your brain is corrupt after the fall, as every part of us is. So to sum up, flesh is the realm of me and myself and I. Okay, this is what flesh is. And it's absolutely symmetrical. <laughs> it's boringly symmetrical. Now, why would I say it's symmetrical? Well, because it's all defined by the distance it is from me, myself, and I. So, you know, it may be down there that far from me, here from me, but it's it's all... You know, centered on me, you know, and who I am. That's what the flesh is. And so um, there's absolutely nothing interesting about it. I've been reading. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're really right. I mean, isn't that true? What's interesting about me? What's interesting about you? Really nothing. I mean, you know, you might have your husband fooled, but... <laughs> You're really not that interesting. There have been women before and there will be women after you. Um, not with your husband, but you get my point. Ooh. Women are very old. Men are very old. Now, 
Think about this for a second. Let me make an application that I think of. In preaching, what is preaching about? Is it about me? It's not supposed to be, is it? Could it be about me? Oh, yeah, it is all the time, isn't it? Now, if you were a preacher and you were in bondage to the flesh, how would you preach? Well, you know what the Puritans say? The Puritans say that you would preach safely. Now, what would safe preaching be? Well, safe preaching would lack danger, correct? I mean, safe is the opposite of of dangerous. Now, what's dangerous preaching? Well, dangerous preaching, number one, is something where you can be rejected. So, how would you be rejected in preaching? Or another way of asking it is, how would you avoid being rejected in preaching? Well, if you want to preach in such a way as not to be rejected, you just say what everybody is comfortable with, right? So, in other words, danger and discomfort and safety and comfort go together. Well, you know, one of the things that the the Puritans were attacked for is the Puritans were attacked for preaching to the conscience. People didn't think you should do that. They thought you should preach to the intellect and let the Holy Spirit apply the word. You know how common that is for preachers to be told that. My last church, again and again, People who had studied in BSF. Now, this is not saying that BSF itself would say this, but people who had spent years in BSF uh, Bible studies would come to me and say, Tim, it is wrong for you to try to convict people in your sermons. Let the Holy Spirit convict them. Well, that's very seductive, isn't it? That would be nice. I think I'll try not to convict you anymore. You all are wonderful. I mean, here's my daughter-in-law. And she's just wonderful. Isn't she wonderful? How many people think she's wonderful? Okay, who else is wonderful? <laughs> you know, one of the reasons that I often don't say my, my, my appreciation, which is a sin, is that it, it like seems so, um, what's the word? It's what every State of the Union address does. Um, there's a word for it. Yeah, pandering. That's the word. It seems so pandering to tell you all, you know, how the word has brought unity to us, you know, and you can all sit there. Yes, we're unified, you know. I need to discipline and that's wrong. But nevertheless, think about preaching and how preaching can be really just working out in public who you are. Right. Because isn't after all, isn't that what everything's about? Who I am? You know, you're a countertenor. You know, I get up and sing. People clap for me. It's like I'm at the center of the universe. Right. All you musicians, how many of you don't always think that you're at the center of the universe? Now, that's a complicated construction, but if you raise, if you raise your hand, you, you have to occasionally think it's about somebody else. Speak now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> well, here's the point. The point is, years ago, Don, back then, Wagner, Wagner came up to me and she said to me she was going to quit singing opera. And you know why? She said she could not handle anymore the egotism that was at the center of singing. Now, egotism is the flesh. It's what it is. 
It may be more obvious with opera than it is with instrument players. It may be more more obvious with musicians than it is with philosophers, although, (laughs) you know, I think you guys back there have problems too, right? Um, It may be more obvious with philosophers and musicians than it is with somebody that builds uh, homes for a living and is a carpenter, right? But listen, all of us... All of us, every single one of us, struggles with the fact that at our heart of hearts, we want the world to revolve around us. Every one of us, in the way we do our work, has to decide whether we're going to work as unto the Lord or unto man and unto our own reputations. Every one of us knows ways that we can take shortcuts in the quality of our work in such a way as that people will think we're great, that we're wonderful. And so we have to make a decision, and our decision has to be whether we are living according to the flesh and its lusts and its passions and its desires, or whether we're living according to the Spirit. And as a church, corporately, we have to make that decision. And what is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is always dangerous. I have said time after time after time that the job of a pastor is to protect the congregation from the Holy Spirit. And you look at me and you go, how could that be? You know how it is. The pastor's supposed to orchestrate things in such a way that you never, ever have to come under conviction of sin. You never have to humble yourself. You never have to cry. You never have to say, what must I do to be saved? And yet you go to Scripture and what you see again and again is that when the Word has been preached in power, what do people do? They say, what must I do to be saved? And that's the one thing I'm supposed to make sure never happens to you. That's what I'm paid for. That's what the elders make me do. You know, make sure next week that no one is under conviction of sin, Tim, because that could make things messy. Now, you say, wait, wait, Tim, what are you talking about? This can't be true. Well, I'm pushing you and I'm trying to get you to see that this is the normal state of affairs of Christians and of churches and of sermons. You're never, ever supposed to be under conviction of sin. Let the Holy Spirit do that. I remember one time we had communion, and there was a man there who was crying, who has since died, and made shipwreck of his faith, I add. Anyhow, that man was under conviction of sin that morning, and he was crying. Next elders meeting, huge hullabaloo over the fact that somebody had been crying during communion. Now, where does that come from? Well, if someone is crying during communion, does that not convict you? Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, I have a sin I want to confess, and immediately in your heart you go, no, please, someone else. You know, pastors do that kind of thing. Go to the priest, you know. Go into that cubicle where there's a door and it's shut and you don't see anybody and you just sort of speak through the grill. (laughs) You know, but don't confess your sin to me. Why? Well, because somebody confesses their sin to me, And immediately, what happens to me? It's the same thing that happens to you as a parent. When you discipline your children, you immediately see that God should discipline you. Right? Isn't that why we avoid disciplining our children? And so this is why I say that the job normally of pastors is to protect you from the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't mean to say that I set out in the morning to think, oh boy, I've got to protect him from the Holy Spirit today. And I don't mean to say that when I go to the elders' meetings, this is what the elders say to me, make sure next week that you protect them from the Holy Spirit. But don't you see, this is what spiritual life is. This is what the controversy was with the Puritans. 
Their church was filled with pastors that felt that people should never be called to repent in a service, except hypothetically, you know, sort of, you know, in your brain, you know, you might want to go home and find a private closet to do that kind of thing. But at church, we should have, you know, a formal, dignified, all things decently and in order. Now, here's the question. What kind of thing happens when you live according to the Spirit instead of according to the flesh? The flesh sets up everything so our pride can be kept, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? I'll set everything up, and you'll set everything up so that we have a mutual conspiracy that nobody here will have to be humbled, right? Isn't that what the flesh wants? Okay? Now, if it's according to the Spirit, what happens? Well, if it's according to the Spirit, what I'm supposed to do is douse myself in gasoline and strike a match. That's the point of preaching. Now, I don't douse myself in gasoline. I douse myself in the Word of God, which is sharper than a two-edged sword, you know, and I go for it. And you know when I'm going for it and when I'm not, right? I think it's pretty obvious. And so one of the things that the Puritans were opposed to is they were opposed to somebody writing out their whole sermon and simply reading from their manuscript. Why? Because when you write, you write in such a way that you don't make any errors, that you don't make a fool of yourself. Everything's safe. Boom, 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 boom. Don't ever depart from the text because you know what you wrote and you can reproduce it afterwards and say, aha, no, I didn't say that. It's right here on the page. You know, whereas now I have no idea what I've said in the last 10 minutes. <laughs> Probably some things that weren't wise. All right. Especially about philosophers. I have, I have a friend that's a philosopher. That's why I poke him, poke him. Now, think about this in terms of the Apostle Paul, would you? I don't ever want you to get the nitpicky parts of the book of Galatians without getting the overarching scheme. And the scheme is so important in the book of Galatians. Here Paul is trying to bring unity to the church, right? And what does he do? He lights himself on fire. It just boggles my brain how so many evangelicals can talk about how we're not under the law and that's legalistic and we have freedom, right? And do it in such a way as to never care about any doctrinal issue, never care about any truth, never light themselves on fire about anything. When... The whole way the Apostle Paul teaches the doctrine that we're not under the law is by lighting himself on fire and I think the equivalent of punching and kicking people. I mean, if you're writing and you say, God damn him, God damn him, I say it again, God damn him, that seems to be the equivalent of punching and kicking. And you have to ask yourself, how is this dude like calling us to unity and to like not giving yourself to factions and dissensions and loving each other when he just got done saying, I wish they'd cut it all off. I mean, have you, have you heard Scripture so much that you don't see it? How could he have just gotten done saying, I wish they'd cut it all off, and then immediately he's saying, walk by the Spirit. The, the fruit of the Spirit is love 
and joy and peace and long-suffering and patience and kindness and gentleness against such self-control is no harm. <laughs> it's like, I wish they'd cut it all off. Gentleness and self-control. I mean, have you never seen the incongruity of that? That it's like not in harmony. So why did the Apostle Paul do this? Well, this is the final thing I want to hit you about the life of the Spirit. The life of the Spirit is not a mist and a vapor. The life of the Spirit is not no creed but Christ. The life of the Spirit is not just nice thoughts about Jesus. The life of the Spirit is what? Now think about this. The life of the Spirit is every single word in this book. And if you despise all the words in this book except Jesus, 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 you don't know Jesus. I like that. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? The Apostle Paul engaged in controversy and he preached to the minds and the hearts of the people that he loved because he knew there would never be unity until they were submissive to the doctrine of Christ. In other words, the way that you bring unity to a church and to a congregation, to a denomination, to a country, to a city, the way you bring unity is you engage in controversy to bring the people back to doctrinal truth. Do you understand this? Doctrine is not antithetical to love and joy and peace and patience and unity. Doctrine is the only way you're going to get unity. What you have in church after church around this country is nothing but mealy-mouthed, molly-coddling, sort of sick and anemic and lacking in iron and any of the vital juices, people who can say Jesus and Jesus and Jesus and have no content to Jesus. Absolutely no content to Jesus. This is how we can have missionaries who go out from this church, don't believe in membership in the church, don't believe in baptizing converts, Jesus alone. That's where you get that from. Because they have bought this notion that unity can be devoid of content. This is why when you do studies of couples who are married, and you think as a feminist that what you're going to find is patriarchal homes are the homes that have disunity where women are beaten. That's what you'd all think, right? All right? But what you find is, when liberals do the studies, you find that it's the most highly educated communities that have some of the most severe rates of abuse. Why? Well, they go in the home and they find they can control for patriarchal leadership based upon sometimes ethnic groups. Now, I don't want to get too specific because I'll offend some of you. All right? But based on ethnic groups and level of education, what they find is that abuse most often comes in a home where, guess what? Where there is a vacuum of leadership, where there is controversy, that's where they hit each other. And so when the Apostle Paul has division in a church in Ephesus, where women are not submitting to their husbands, and where women are exercising authority over men in the church, he doesn't back off and say, no creed but Christ, I have determined to preach Jesus Christ alone and Him crucified. What he says is, Adam was created first and then Eve. And guess what? He intends to bring unity to the church in Ephesus. And so you look around America today and you say, yeah, lots of places there is some notion that maybe it might be a good thing if husbands lead. But why? 
Is it because all of a sudden they put together what the Apostle Paul put together, which is if you have fighting in a home, you need to teach the husband to love the wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And you need to teach the wife to submit to the husband as the church submits to her head, Jesus Christ. And you need to teach them the basis of that, which is the fact that Adam was created first and then Eve. And all of a sudden, guess what? You have unity. You have unity. Why? Well, because the Apostle Paul is such a gentleman that he doesn't bring up embarrassing issues and, and he smiles a lot. And he tells everyone how much he loves them because Christ loves him. I mean, it's a joke. You know? It's a joke. Since when has a ref ever brought unity to a basketball court by overlooking every single malicious foul? Any idiot knows that what happens in a situation like that is that the whole game breaks down into violence. <laughs> you know, and yet in the church, we think unity comes by overlooking every single lust of the flesh, every selfishness, every violation of what Scripture teaches, whether it's between the sexes, whether it's purity, whether it's greed, whether whatever it is, overlook it, just say Jesus a lot, and, and we'll all be okay. And if people don't like church membership, well, you know, say, well, you know, it don't matter. You know, if you want to come to the Lord's Supper and you're not under any authority, that's fine with us because we don't want to appear to be authoritarian and rigid. You know, we're, we're just guys like you. <laughs> All right. What is the life of the Spirit? The life of the Spirit is under this book. Jesus said, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Okay? This is the Word of the Spirit. This is the sword of the Spirit. And the sword in the body of Christ heals. Okay? If you want unity in your marriage, come under the Word of God. If you want unity with your parents, come under the Word of God. It says, honor your father and mother. Okay, if you want unity at work, work is unto the Lord. Anything there is in your life where there is disunity, you need to bring that area under the sword of the spirit, piercing between joints and marrow. Bring it under the word of God. This word and all its particularity is not in opposition to unity. It's not the person that teaches the sovereignty of God that's bringing disunity. It's the person that denies the sovereignty of God and acts as if what God said was a mistake. And had he been more wise, he would never have spoken of predestination because it's such a divisive doctrine. And so let's, let's, let's not talk about that because it's a divisive doctrine, right? God gave it to us. You know, God knows what He's doing. How can you say you believe in the inspiration of Scripture and then be completely indifferent to the specific doctrines that the Holy Spirit gives you in Scripture? If the Apostle Paul, in the book of Galatians, says, alright, that we are to serve one another in love, that we're not to be disunited, and he just got done saying, I wish they'd go ahead and cut it all off, all right? There must be an internal consistency between both those words. Do you understand that? Because they both come from the Holy Spirit. So what's the application of this? 
That's all I've been talking about. The application of this is, you cannot be a Christian and deny the content of Scripture. You cannot love the content of Scripture and not live it. You can't live it and not talk about it. You can't talk about it if you haven't studied it. In other words, the unity of the Spirit is going to come through the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Every particular word in here, if it says man, a nair in Greek, it means man. If it says... Eudaioi, it means Jews. It doesn't mean Jewish leaders. All right, Every single word, particularly the most offensive words. So if you come to a text, the way you begin to build this spirit, the unity of the spirit, to walk by the spirit, to deny your flesh, is to take particular attention to those parts of scripture that you don't like. I mean, isn't this like a basic thing? You know, if you're dealing with your child, wouldn't you watch and when your child goes, you know, wouldn't you focus in on that point? All right, we're going to come back to this, but I want you to understand that when the Apostle Paul gets intense about unity, it is not in opposition to everything that has come before where he is wailing on these dudes. It's the fact that the wailing on the dudes is what the Holy Spirit is going to use to bring unity. It is not accidental that the unity of this congregation came from a bunch of fighting over whether or not elders should be elders and practice discipline. And we have regularly had conflicts in this church where the elders looked at each other and said, I don't know, what do you think? And the elder, I don't know, what do you think? And you all look at each other and say, I don't know, what do you think, right? (laughs) And what's going on there is everybody's saying, well, I don't really want to rebuke this person. And, 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 well, will you do it? No, I'm not going to. Will you do it? No, I, I don't want to do it. How about you? Well, you're closest to them. Maybe they'll listen to you. And this is what elders' meetings always have been at churches that are faithful. And churches that aren't, they talk about money and schedules. So the unity of this spirit and this flock is built upon fighting for doctrine, fighting against the lusts of the flesh and all the things that bring disunity. And it's not because we like controversy. It's because we love peace. That's why Paul fought the first four chapters of the book of Galatians. Okay, let's pray.